This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons with Helen Farmer on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. Great to have you with us on today's podcast. We are talking all things skin. Dr. Fahim, consultant dermatologist from King's College Hospital, really putting allergies under the spotlight. So what do we look for when it comes to patch testing? What's the gold standard and how many things can he indeed test for? Also in conversation with a voice coach, exploring why we don't like the sound of our own voice and is there anything we can do about it? Plus, why is voice so important? Plus, examining the term of shift shock. That change in a job, a role, a project, what impact it can have on us and how we can ultimately overcome that shock. And the concept of being or feeling other. We were chatting with an author and entrepreneur who's made this the subject of her book. Joining us in studio, consultant dermatologist and allergy specialist at King's College Hospital, Dr. Fahim Lati. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, you work between the UK and Dubai. Um, and as I said, allergy specialist, we're going to be talking about patch testing, what you're doing there at King's in terms of that gold standard. Um, before we start getting into the science part, doctor, I wondered why was this an area of medicine that you wanted to work in and kind of dedicate your, your career to? Thanks for having me on the show, Helen. You're really welcome. enjoy your show. Um, so, yeah, I mean, dermatology, I think I stumbled into it, but it's probably one of the best kept secrets in medicine. Um, I'm, I feel blessed to have got into it. I think um, the thing with dermatology, as people realize when they have skin issues, is the impact it has on mental health and, you know, your, your quality of life in general. And actually being able to make that difference to people and actually seeing that difference is very rewarding. It's also really varied. We get to see... Uh, children, uh, infants, we see people who are 100 years old, uh, various types of conditions, no day is boring, this great variety, Uh, absolutely love it. I thank you for acknowledging that because I feel like when you know we've talked about aesthetics before and even with aesthetics there is a bit of a misconception that it's just about you know how you look looking younger getting rid of the wrinkles but you know as you rightly say and I say this as someone who suffered from eczema as a child um, and I've you know whether it's acne or eczema or psoriasis or you know all you know all manner of conditions that you treat if you want to feel confident about putting your best face or indeed skin forward it's not just about how you look it's about how you you know move around the world how you feel being photographed how you feel meeting people for the first time so I'm sure you've had some really meaningful, you know, transformations, for want of a better word, for people kind of inside and out. Absolutely. And and I think, as you say, because you've suffered with it, you know what it's like. And I think it can be hard for people who don't have problems and it can obviously be trivialized even by other doctors where they think, oh, it's just a skin problem. Mm -hmm. But actually, it's it's what the world sees, isn't it? And it's and and it's not just sort of a cosmetic thing. It, It has a huge impact. And yeah, we've had many patients who say, you know, it's been life changing. You know, they, they when they come to clinic the very first time, they're struggling at work, they're struggling with relationships and, and the transformation after a few months with whatever condition it is, it, it, you know, it's huge. And that's what makes it so rewarding. So you are a consultant dermatologist, but probably a bit of a counselor as well in clinic. I'm Absolutely. Sure it all comes I think, out. you know, um, to, to, to be able to 
treat someone um, appropriately, I think you have to first sort of engage and 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 understand their sort of ideas and mm-hmm. their concerns and what you know what they're going through, and then we can then set sort of similar expectations of you know what we want to achieve with the treatment. It's not just treating their skin; it's certainly treating their mind. Absolutely. Well, we're talking allergies in particular today. Um, how do you feel like that conversation's changed since you started working in uh, in skin, doctor? Yes, yeah, so, so allergies are very topical subject but there's a lot of misunderstanding and I think um, most people when they hear the word allergy they jump to food allergies and you know um, clearly there is that is a very important side of things and also people assume if they have a skin rash especially here in Dubai I've come across people when they come into the clinic they say I've got an allergy skin rash but you know so every skin rash is thought to be allergic in nature which is, is not the case and so I think there's a lot to sort of educate people about with regards to allergy. Unfortunately, there's also a lot of um, commercial drive towards making money from uh, um, unnecessary allergy testing. So which, that's you yeah. being diplomatic. I'm yeah. going to say <laughs> dodgy testing. <going> yes. <laughs> Whereas, you know, what you've been doing over there at King's is, I guess, in terms of the, the gold standard, we're talking there about changing people's lives, about how they move through the world with confidence. But in, in, in this sense, it's how people can be avoiding discomfort and pain and triggers so with skin um, allergies and what you know talking about allergy patch testing which previously hasn't been available in the UAE to, to this extent um, can you explain some of the most common most prevalent allergies in Dubai that maybe even might surprise people listening today yeah sure Ella. I think if, if you if you don't mind if I tell them first about I think the the issue as I say is that everyone assumes um, most allergies are food related and, and I think it's helpful to distinguish what how these kind of things present so I think if you think of a typical patient who has a food allergy for example a nut allergy they they, they take they ingest the nut and immediately they get swelling of their lips and a hives kind of a rash so it's a very immediate type reaction and most people would actually know if they have a, a food allergy um, then there's this gray area in between called intolerance which actually there isn't a a proven test that's been scientifically validated. And okay, um, there's lots of theories. I think if you have skin disease, for example, eczema or acne, it's a, all, the, all of these conditions are inflammatory. So if you eat something that's pro-inflammatory, such as sugars, dairy, that would potentially make it worse. But it's not the cause of the problem, which is very important to tell the patient because they think someone with acne thinks that they're doing this to themselves, but it's actually a medical condition that we need to treat. Um, now, with regards to the allergies uh, that I'm testing to uh, and skin allergies, what we're talking about is people who have rashes. So usually it's an eczema or a dermatitis type rash, which means the, main, the same thing. It's just the word that goes in front of it that defines what type of eczema or dermatitis it is. But say you've got a scaly, itchy rash on your face, around your eyes, your lips, or sort of genital skin or your hands, um, and, and, it's, and it's protracted, it's, it's long-lasting, it's been there for months or weeks, and it can flare up and down. That's the kind of condition where you'd be thinking, could I have a contact allergy? And, and by virtue of the name, what we're looking for is something that goes in contact with your skin that's causing a reaction. And those kind of things are typically things you wouldn't imagine. So things that you've been using for years that your body suddenly becomes allergic to. So that could be fragrance or preservatives and personal care products. It could be hair dye. And one of the things that probably shock a lot of listeners, but is on the, on the rise in the UK particularly is gel shellac acrylic nails. Don't look at my nails. I've, <laughs> I've got my Christmas nails on. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's not to say everyone get, is going to get it, but it's something we've seen a huge spike in. And the problem is you, you won't see any issues with your actual nails. It's when you touch your face, you get a little rash around your eyes, on your neck, and it just presents as a scaly red itchy patch. And, and no one will 
relate that to the nails. And, and, and if it's a personal care product, you might have put it on on a Monday and it's not till Friday you get the reaction. So it's very hard for a patient to sort of put two and two together. So I'm sure you get people who come to you sometimes out of a bit of curiosity. There might be, you know, wondering if something could be a contact allergy, which we're talking about today, these skin allergies, or perhaps someone who is expecting or hoping that you are like their very own doctor house, you know, something of a detective. Um, tell us a little bit about how the allergy patch testing works, because you're testing for more things, more potential allergens than than anyone else, doctor. Can you break it down for us about what it looks like in practice and in clinic? Yeah, sure, Helen. It's interesting that you said uh, detective work because there's there's a Sherlockian uh, approach to patch testing. Actually, there's, <laughs> it's been published because it's actually really interesting in, in the way that you sort of because you have to take a really good detailed history initially to be able to establish a whether they need allergy testing and then mm. secondly to what they need testing, which is the critical thing. So, the, the difference with what was done previously in the UAE in terms of the number of allergens is the is the issue that you'll miss things if, if you don't have those allergens available. So you've got to look at the things that the patient's being exposed to and make sure that you're sort of covering for those. So um, in terms of that, the history is crucial, as I say, and sometimes it's their occupation. Uh, for example, if they're being exposed to chemicals at work, that could, that could make a difference. So uh, with regards to the patch testing, we, we, we see them, we interview them, decide on the allergens, and then essentially what happens is these allergens are prepared by the nursing team. It's quite a laborious process, but uh, we, we've got these allergens uh, that are delivered to us. They're made in Sweden, actually. Uh, and in, I grew up in Sweden, so it was a, a nice you? experience. Yeah, so I'd, I'd actually been to the company um, uh, headquarters and it's a re re really impressive facility that they've got and they're always at the cutting edge trying to f uh, sort of find out which new allergens are coming out and preparing the appropriate formulations. So, so we prepare those and we stick them on the patient's back uh, and sometimes onto the arms if we're running out of space on the Monday and then we leave it on until the Wednesday, typically so two days later, take it off, see if there's any initial reactions and then have a final look on the Friday uh, for a delayed, because we're looking for this delayed reaction because it's the body's immune system that's involved and that's mm -hmm. why we have to do these readings over three days. So and how many substances might be put on somebody? So um, uh, it's very variable, as I say. It depends on, on what the people are being exposed to. But um, in the UK, I've had patients who've been tested to up to like 260 allergens. And so the nurses aren't very pleased what? with me when I do <laughs> it that. Takes but, but yeah, it takes a long time. So, so I have to be judicious in terms of what I apply. But I would say, you know, in, most people now in Dubai, we're able to offer 150 plus uh, if it's relevant, you know. So uh, and previously it was about 36, 37 allergens wow. that this true test could, uh, could test, which is the commercially available one. So from the more kind of common substances up to the super unusual, can you give mm. us some of the examples of the things that you might be placing on someone's back? Yeah, sure. Arms? So a really good question. So the most common thing that most people uh, probably be able to relate to is having had uh, reactions to costume jewellery, like cheap earrings like, when you were young. Yeah. yeah. I, I, it's funny, as I've got older, I've become less tolerant to, I guess, yeah, cheap cheap jewellery. So you probably, nickel, probably don't wear it as much now. I actually, <laughs> I actually I, it's funny, I've got my ears pierced, but yeah. I don't wear earrings at all because of wearing headphones every day. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, I don't, okay, so... So, so that's, that's a nickel, nickel allergy. So that's the most common, but I can also be found in jean straps, belt buckles, you know, that sort of, you know, so mm -hmm. there are other potential exposures, uh, jean studs. So um, in terms of... Uh, 
the second most common relevant. So the nickel most people would know, and usually people wouldn't come in and say, "Oh, can you test me?" You know, I've got this problem. Like they'd, they'd have figured it out, yeah. But but the, the the most common one that's most relevant actually is fragrance. And as soon as you say fragrance, oh well, I don't use a lot of perfume. But actually, if you start looking at all of your products that you use at home, from your moisturizers to your detergents to your shampoos, everyone will say perfume, parfum, fragrance, aroma in the ingredients. And, and that's one of the things that people are becoming allergic to. And we have a lot of patients who say, oh, well, I'm, I only use natural things. Well, the natural essential oils are the ones that people then react to as lavender, rosewood. You know, there's loads of things that we test to. So, um, and, and if you're a masseuse, for example, like they're, they're high-risk occupations, beauticians, um, nail technicians. So let's say we're <coughs> testing up to 200 substances mm-hmm. o- over, a, over a case of kind of five days, for example. Yeah. Someone's come back and they have these reactions, and sometimes I'm sure it's quite severe. Sometimes it might be quite quite subtle. What next? You know, is it a case of these are things you need to be avoiding for life, or are there some ways that you can help someone build up tolerance or become less reactive to these products? Yeah, so that's another great question. So, in terms of the um, what what we find on the patch test, so they're actual specific chemicals. So I can be very specific. I can say it's not just, I can tell them exactly which fragrance it is. Having said that, if there's multiple fragrances because of the way products are labeled, they sometimes have to completely avoid fragrances. Mm-hmm. So I'll give them a list of fragrance-free alternative products to choose from. Um, in terms of uh, other rarer allergens, it can be a lot easier because they just look, look out for it. In, because it involves the body's immune system and the memory cells, we can't actually... It's, a, it's an analogy that they have for life. Okay. Um, right, to the text line. And um, we've had a number of messages relating to this, but also to other areas of dermatology. If you've got any questions, of course, uh, for Dr. Fahim, you can get in touch on 4001. You've got the app, you've got the WhatsApp. You can be anonymous if you if you prefer. Um, but Elisa's saying, why do so many people claim to be allergic to cats? Um, as you know, are pregnant women more prone? How are they properly diagnosed and how can it show? So obviously you're here looking at skin in particular mm-hmm. and... I am actually allergic to cats. <laughs> we had Gary the garage kitten living in our um, in our garage for a few weeks, and I would immediately, you know, sneeze. He, um, she actually scratched me on the arm last week, and the scratches became quite raised yeah. quite quickly. Yeah. So, in terms of, is that something that you would be struggling with? So, so um, that that is actually the same as a type one allergy, which is in the same sort of category as the food allergy. So it's an immediate reaction because uh, like you've just described, when oh, the within catch seconds. Tested, yeah, within seconds, exactly. So that's tested with a prick test. Now, I do do prick tests alongside the patch testing, but it's not the uh, the main thing. So, yeah. so usually the people who do that are uh, immunologists. And basically, uh, cat allergy is quite common. It's, it's a bit more... So, Basically, any animal dander, uh, that kind of analogy is more common in atopic individuals, so people who have eczema, asthma, and hay fever. And typically, it presents with what you just described, so like a hives type of a reaction, itching straight away, runny eyes, runny nose, uh, and it can be helped with antihistamine. Um, so that's, oh, I was yeah. popping pills like yeah. no one's business. <laughs> um, there's also been talk about how it's now saliva rather than the, the dander. So yes, a bit more complicated. It's, uh, so, so, so it's basically a protein that causes the issue. So, so you may have a specific allergy to various bits of it. So you, 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 do, you do, again, need good testing for that. But, you know, usually an allergy te- uh, for, for cat, again, it, most people know it. But like, and, and I do it for people who are atopics who... Because even though it doesn't cause eczema, like we said, it causes more of a hives reaction. But if somebody has eczema and they start scratching because this cat set them off, then that can set off their eczema as a secondary response. Mm-hmm. So, so it's still helpful, particularly if someone's having a problem in an aeroallergy distribution. So on the face, it could be pollen, grass, 
uh, animal dander. And for those kind of treatments, um, for those kind of allergies, sorry, there is desensitization treatment available. Oh, really? Such as? Uh, so, so you can, you can actually be injections? continuously exposed to it. So you can have a sublingual uh, therapy, but it's over the course of a, a quite a long period. But that's again done by an immunologist, not a dermatologist. Consultant dermatologist <laughs> with us today, Dr. <laughs> Fahim with us from King's College Hospital. And I'm curious, do you notice much kind of geographical differences between what's coming into clinic, you know, in, in Leeds versus Dubai? Yeah, definitely there is a, there is a difference. I think the populations are quite uh, different as well, which I hadn't really realised. I think for some period of time, I think Dubai is very much a working population, so you possibly don't get the very older uh, generation mm-hmm. coming in. Um, but but I think it's probably evening out a little bit now. I think there's been changes in there. In, in, yeah, yeah, you can you can stay here a bit longer. What yeah. about in terms of allergy results? You know, you noticing any you know more common triggers in the UAE versus the UK? So I, I think actually at the moment. Um, it's fairly similar because, the, as I said, alluded to earlier, like fragrance and things like that, it's, it's basically um, based on what people are being exposed to the most. Mm-hmm. And I think w- with with the kind of exposures in Dubai reflecting pretty much what's in the West and probably to a greater degree here, because I think you've got the, the combination Looking of everything. Looking at my yeah. jellish nails. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I do think, um, but, but I think previously, in, when I looked at the literature for UAE allergy, it was just nickel that had been published. So that's really you know quite far behind you yeah know, so, it will be interesting to see yeah. you know given the testing that you're doing exactly. in so the, in a few years it would be really nice to see re- yeah we'll reflect put, yes. put a date in the diary <laughs> yes um we've had lots of messages for you we're going to do a bit of a quick fire round on the text line if you don't mind we've had some relating to allergies and eczemas and flare-ups and some on the aesthetic front as well um fern is saying my baby's had a really bad flare-up of eczema and we think it's food related as we've started solid how can you test on really little ones so um, it's a good question and one we, you know, we get a lot because uh, I you know, had a, a patient yesterday come in uh, with a similar presentation and similar questions. And, and the thing is actually when you do take the history, the, the child was born with a bit of cradle caps to suggest that there was already that sort of genetic predisposition. Uh, they then start developing eczema in the typical places, which is the creases of the arms, backs of the legs or in the, on the neck area, something extending onto the face. And sometimes it's then made worse when they come when they start to wean off the uh, breast milk. And um, sure, cow's milk protein allergy is very uh, common and it is it is a problem. But as I said before, it doesn't cause eczema per se. It causes um, an immediate reaction. So they they often start vomiting or they got loose uh, nappies and um, they'll get, they'll get more of a red itchy rash that's very immediate. But what can happen is if they've already then got eczema, that will make the eczema worse because yes. then they're starting to scratch. It so, sounds like what's... Yeah. So in term, so the, the patch test that we were the just talking about... The patch test is not the right test for this, so it would be the prick test. So so they could see a paediatric allergist. So we've got one at King's who's very good. And, and so this patient I saw yesterday, I treated their eczema, but then referred them on for the confirmation of the uh, food allergy testing. Okay. It's, yeah, we're hearing more and more about those milk proteins. I was at um, Wright Market the other day and they had horse milk. Of, um, I was like... Goat, camel, yeah, horse, horse milk, <laughs> all the farmyard available. Um, I've had a message here um, from Ellie saying, please help. How on earth do you tell a food allergy rash from other rational sensitivities? Our son's got sensitive skin. He's school age and we introduced peanuts last month. He had an obvious rash from the peanuts. so We got rid of them entirely. All nuts. He's had milk and egg his whole life. So I can't imagine he'd be allergic to that. Nothing is new in his diet apart from that. He'll get a pinkish light flat red dots but we don't know if it's sensitive skin or reaction we thought it was milk eliminated reintroduced seeming no no problems it's frustratingly subtle if it's an allergy 
So I know you can. Po- I know we're calling you Sherlock here, but and I know you can't possibly give a diagnosis. Over well, the text line, uh, dermatology but- is a very visual speciality, exactly. so actually seeing the rash makes a huge difference. But you know, I think, like you said, like we've said a few times, you know, if, 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 with a true allergy to nut and things like that, you would notice it straight away. So you would get that swelling of the lips and the hives kind of a rash. So this subtle rash sounds more likely irritant or unrelated, but I think it's always worth seeing somebody just to get it confirmed. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if you see a dermatologist and they're well-trained, they'll be able to tell you whether you need testing or not. And, and not everybody needs, you know, you shouldn't go for unnecessary allergy testing. And, that, and that's very important. Uh, <clears throat> Doctor, you're in Dubai until the 5th of January, going right. to be at King's. So if you'd like, Ali, I can send you doctor's details and connect you guys offline. Um, no name on this one saying, and I knew we were going to get it. Molluscum. Uh, my son started with some spots about two years ago and he's still getting more and more of them. Sometimes they're red or pussy, seem to be infected. The doctor won't do anything about them. I'm just worried they're never going to go away or turning or turn into something serious. Has your doctor got any advice, please? Before we talk treatment, what is molluscum? So molluscum is a condition, molluscum contagiosum is the actual name of the condition. It's caused by pox virus. So it's a viral infection. Basically, it's seen in young children because their body's immune system isn't able to get rid of that particular virus at that stage. But at some point, it will get strong enough and then it will just go away. The problem is it's very frustrating because as it spreads and it's, yeah, it's two years is a long, a long time to have it. And the problem is, obviously, it's uncomfortable if you've got eczema, it usually makes the eczema worse too. And you can get a bit of eczema around it. Um, Now, there are some treatments for it. And uh, the first line treatment, something called Molyudab, which we 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 use in the UK, it's just uh, uh, basically... It, it causes an irritant reaction around the molluscum, so it, it's stimulating the body's uh, immune system to attack it. Uh, but I have another treatment that I've used, which is a bit uh, um, sort of unlicensed. It's not what it's you know meant please, to be used for. Please don't get me in trouble. <laughs> well, so I won't mention too much about it, but it's, an, it's a tablet that we can use. Um, and I've had some great results with that. It's, uh, it, it's something that's used for indigestion, weirdly, uh, but it's got antiviral properties. So there are, there are some studies. It's not something I've just made up. But, like, you know, so there, there, is, there is evidence for it, but it's not, you know, mainstream usage. So there are a few things. We can also use cryotherapy, which is liquid nitrogen, but, but we don't want to do anything that will scar the skin because if it heals by itself and the body's immune system gets rid of it, then it usually looks, heals a lot better. Interesting. Mm-hmm. All right, no name. Um, as I said, if you want uh, Dr. Veeam's details, just send me the word doc or the word skin. I will send you the link, as I said, practicing at King's until the 5th of January. Right. Can we talk menopause acne? Um, anonymous message saying, my skin looks so awful, full of spots that hang around for weeks. Um, I've tried all sorts of products. Nothing helps. I'm finding it really embarrassing to be in my 50s with a face full of zits. You do think that you get past the teen years and these things are behind you. And then the hormones throw you a curveball. Now, you've got some amazing endocrinologists and gynecologists at King's. And I think often it becomes a bit of a whole team approach for dealing something, you know, something like the menopause where you've got all sorts of different, mm-hmm. like a, you know, a laundry list of symptoms that, you know, people can be struggling and suffering with. Um, but when it comes to skin in particular, um, and we're thinking about, you know, that, that drop in estrogen and how it can manifest in, in the skin as an, as an organ, um, is there anything that you think can be useful for people to know if they are struggling and suffering such as this, isn't it? Yeah, so so I think, you know, one of the things with acne is um, people say, oh, it's hormonal acne. Actually, all acne is technically hormonal. So it's the, it's the hormones working on these grease glands that sit on your skin. And I have a lot of patients where the acne persists well into the 50s and it can be so frustrating. And, and it's one of the conditions, actually, I love treating because we can absolutely clear it. And you just need to target the, the bit that 
is the problem. So you always need something that controls the grease with a retinoid, but actually treating the hormones itself is an option. Measuring hormones usually doesn't change management. So actually, you know, I wouldn't waste too much time with that. But in terms of hormonal treatments, obviously, if you were in the younger age bracket, you could use contraceptive pills and things. But actually, there's another very effective treatment called spironolactone, uh, which interestingly is a blood pressure medication. But weirdly, again, unlicensed, we use a lot of unlicensed things in dermatology, but it works on the male hormone that causes the acne in this sort of um, age group. And it works really well, especially if you have polycystic ovarian syndrome, uh, then um, it, it can be very effective at clearing the acne. It's got very little in the way of side effects, very little in the way of monitoring. So that's a good way of looking at it. But I would always encourage you to go and see a dermatologist to get your acne treated because skincare industry, I'm f- sorry to say, but it, it, it is just a lot of marketing oh. that does not work for most people who have acne and they spend thousands and thousands of pounds and, and then you know we can clear it up fairly easily, to be honest. We're now seeing, you know, menopause skin products and, you know, love sticking a, a label on things, but sometimes it's a case of going, going back to basics. It's, the interesting thing about skin, as you're saying, is it can just be this manifestation of something else that's going on. And, you know, you mentioned hormones there, but, it, you know, it could be the gut, you know, and just the way it can come out. Um, st- staying with acne, actually, but going to the other end of the of the age is here. Um, a message here from, um, from Girish saying, wondering if your doctor can recommend a skincare product or regime for a 10-year-old. Um, our son started to get some blemishes, noting some blackheads around the nose. We found some rages online, but wondering we had first-hand experience of something that is gentle but works. So pre-teen skin. Yeah. So, so again, a good, good question and something that we see a lot of. But as I say, the principle of treating acne is that you've sort of got to control that oil because what's mm-hmm. happening with these comedones, the comedones are basically these blocked uh, follicles. And, and so if they're exposed to the air, they become oxidized. They look like blackheads if they're, they're open, uh, they're whiteheads. So basically um, what we need is something to reduce that grease formation and that's the retinoid so basically retinoids are things like tretinoin or adapalene um they're a bit irritating so there's a there's a regime of how you have to build it up but we we really have to see somebody to 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 be able to tell certain antibiotics can be can't be used in that age group and there's also a slightly higher risk of relapse because he's uh, less than 13 and there'll be new grease glands being formed later but some of those products you're talking about, like Tretinoin in particular, you know, mm. available over the counter, but need to be done with doctor supervision just to make sure you've got that tolerance and you're using your sunscreen and all of that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm actually quite surprised that it is available over the counter here because in the UK it's not. So we'd have to, it's, you know, you need a prescription. It's, cool. it's great. <laughs> it's like so I've got some of the best anti-aging active properties for 15 dirhams. Absolutely. So Thank it, it is very much. helpful for anti-aging. But uh, I think in, in, in an acne patient, you want to be careful because initially there will be a bit of a purge where it gets a little bit worse before it gets better. So people need to be made aware of that otherwise they stop uh, at the wrong time doctor thank you so much for your time really really fascinating to think have a bit of a deep dive into that allergy and, and really offering hope to people that might be you know really scratching their heads quite literally for years and years and years um now i'm just thinking about the timing so uh, yes people could come in and start to have the profit the, go through the process if people really want to investigate it if you want details of Dr. Fahim. He is here at King's College Hospital until the 5th of January. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Really, really really interesting and um, hopefully helpful for a lot of people listening today or indeed someone in their lives. (laughs) 
The words a leader speaks are important, of course, but how they're delivered can make all the difference. So says John Baldoni. I'm joining now by Kim A. Page, a communications expert, a TEDx speaker and a vocal coach. See, I knew I'd get nervous speaking in front of you. (laughs) I honestly started, it was like having the dermatologist in the studio earlier. I was like trying to hide my skin from him. (laughs) How are you, Kim? Very happy to be here, Helen. Hello. You're someone I was not nervous about putting in front of the microphone at all, but an awful lot of people feel very self-conscious about how they speak, how they're perceived in a public forum or even conversationally. Um, I would love to know why are you interested in the voice and why should we care about the voice, Kim? Well, the voice is such a big part of who we are and about who we are as a person. And actually, if you go into the root of that word, pet in Latin is through and son is sound. So through our sound, we become who we are. Wow. And in terms of the impact it can have professionally, personally, tell us a little bit about that. Well, I think because I'm a communication coach, I work with all the tools of interpersonal connection. How do you reach the audience and how do you get through and how do you make them remember you and all of that. And I think of all of them, the most sensitive and the most powerful, it is the voice. Mm -hmm. And part of that is because it is so in intensely intimate Absolutely. so it goes from the inside of my body up through my throat and then I do different muscle things depending on who I am the language and then as we know it becomes sound waves those sound waves enter in through your air canal and becomes vibration inside your body so it's from the inside of one body to the other body that's very intimate I just got I just got goosebumps thinking about that and I think we often forget you know working in radio it is a very it's a very intimate thing to do and it's immediate you know that was something we became very aware of during the pandemic that you know you could write a tweet you know you can write an email you can send a message out but there was no quicker way of relaying information or conveying uh, the idea of community and togetherness through you know putting our mics up and or picking up the phone and and having a chat and um, and it is you're absolutely right you know a a great voice can give you goosebumps, whether it is, you know, Whitney Houston or listening to a speech and we can connect with what is being said if it's being affected really, you know, really effectively communicated. What do you think makes a great voice, Kim? So we have very different personalities, as I just said, and I don't think it's uh, healthy to have very limited or boxed in voice ideals. But there's two qualities that I think really distinguish good voices from the others. And the first aspect is that the voice needs to be body connected. Because it starts inside the body. What does body connected mean? Well, it means that, um, unfortunately, in today's modern society, a lot of us are very head focused and we live in our mind. We have deadlines, you know, we're very mental. And that makes us sometimes disconnected from our bodies. And so if I now start projecting my voice and for example, right now, if I start right now, I start projecting from my throat, especially when I speak loud, it gets very difficult to hear me. And now I'm speaking from my stomach. Wow. I'm now thinking about projecting from my throat, which is not very nice to do, (laughs) whereas now I'm projecting from my stomach. Wow, that's so interesting. So in terms of the voice training, the coaching that you do, who are the kind of people that you work with and what does that look like in practice? So the nice thing about being a voice coach is that everybody uses their voice. And another very um, interesting aspect is that I don't, It's fascinating to me because of all the different communication tools that we use, the voice is something we use every day. Mm. And it's something that has impact both in one-to-one conversations, when we give presentations, when we are leaders and all of that. And still, there's kind of like this idea of, but we don't need voice training. 
And I think it's because it's an unknown and most leaders are not aware of what it is. Yeah, it's a bit abstract, isn't it? I mean, sometimes lumped in with media training when people talk about, as you talk about projection, enunciation and, and getting your point across and timing and all the rest of it. But it's almost a separate discipline. And I'm sure you think of it as being separate to media training. Well, for me, yes, it is. I mean, I'm not specialized in media. So if I have a client and they need that, I need to have a, a team member who comes in with that special part. But I'm specialized in the voice. And so um, you can have different kinds of trainings focusing on different things. Uh, this year, I had some very breakthrough results with a training that I call voice and expression, which is about how do I get my my intentions, my emotions and all of that. How do I get that into the voice? Because one of the voice ideals is that it is expressive. Mm -hmm. We don't like flat voices. We don't like the recorded automated voices. We want the voice to be human. This is good news with AI taking over yes. industries for me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we are joined in the studio this afternoon uh, by Kim A. Page. She is a communication expert, a TEDx speaker, a vocal coach. And you've got a copy of your book in front of you now, Right Kind of Loud. Tell us a little bit about the research that went into it and ultimately the method that you've created, Kim. So when I wrote the book, I thought when you write a business book with tools for professionals, you have a choice. Either you do academic research and you base it on that or you go into the experiential field. Mm. And because I've been on the floor with this for 20 plus years, I thought I'm going to include a lot of stories from client work and well, actually stories about my own learning of the tools. Absolutely, because it's personal to people. You know, people come to you for a reason, to solve a problem, to connect, to have confidence. And I'm sure you've seen some really significant transformations and, you know, people coming in who maybe had no confidence in getting up on stage and, you know, the sky's the limit. So tell us about the method. So when I was writing the book, I it was kind of like a download process. I didn't invent anything. I wrote down things that I've been standing on the floor saying to groups of people for many years. First, I thought it must be very boring. And then I realized, oh, it's boring to me. It's not boring to others. Well, this is the thing. This is, this is information, knowledge that you take for granted that you know, and we don't know it. So for anyone reading it, what do you think some of the key takeaways are in terms of improving our connection, improving our voice, improving our communication? So I think one of the baselines in the book, it's really about having the space to bring yourself as who you are and being in contact with yourself. I think especially young professionals often have this thing of now I'm professional and then start separating the personality from who they are and becoming very boxed in, if you mm -hmm. will. And the right kind of loud is having the sensation you can bring yourself and be real. It's about really being real and rooted in the moment, being responsive to what's happening. I think that's very timely. I think there's we're seeing a lot more humanity showing up in the workplace, certainly post-pandemic, you know, whether it was, you know, seeing people's kids and cats or, you know, just understanding the struggles that people have. And when you are your more authentic self, your message comes across a lot more clearly. You're not, it's not, it's, it's exhausting trying to be someone else the whole time. It's exhausting. So... Better to be a first-class version of yourself than a second-class version of somebody else. Um, let's go to the text line, Kim. We've had a message from Paula saying, why does hearing our own voice give us the ick? Well, Paula is spot on because this is a question I get from so many uh, audiences and people in my hands. When I am speaking right now, the voice comes from inside my stomach. And of course, I have ear canals like everyone else. So the sound is coming to me through the ear canals from the inside of my body, and partly from outside. When I'm recorded, I, the whole sound comes only from the outside. So the placement of where the sound comes from is different. And 
the good news for Paul and everyone else is this is the same for everyone. <laughs> Nobody likes their voice mm-hmm. recorded. And we others, we've never heard anything else. So we think it's beautiful the way it is. Mm-hmm. Now, one of my least favorite parts of my job, and there are not many, is sometimes we need to go and listen to ourselves in the boss's office. Oh, it is the worst. Um, please no name saying on the text line, I'm curious about changing or neutralizing my accent. Wasn't aware of how strong it was until I moved to Dubai five years ago and now I think it's holding me back professionally. Is that a concern you've had from clients in the past, Kim? People thinking that their accent is, yeah, I mean, in, in this lady or gentleman's word, holding them back. Definitely. It's a big part of working with the voice because you have in the business world, the business world is dominated by native English speakers. I mean, the language is nat- nat- for native English speakers. And I think many people are not aware of what a huge privilege that is. Mm. So for those that are non-native English speakers, um, we often internalize a feeling of being less than. And when I have that issue, I always say, you know, you're not less than, you're actually more than. You're the one who learned another language, very often they learn two, three, four languages. Well said, absolutely. I mean, you, you're Norwegian yourself. I mean, I speak rubbish French and English, all right. But I, you know, growing up in Dubai, I look at my kids and think, gosh, your friends are amazing. They're speaking, you know, one, two, three, four languages sometimes. So thank you for, for, I'm sure that's a really meaningful reminder to a lot of people today that what an incredible accomplishment it is to be able to speak, you know, be bi or trilingual and what an asset you are to a company because of that. So for anyone that, I mean, is it possible to neutralize an accent a little bit if people feel like they're, you know, when they speak, they're misunderstood or misheard a lot? Absolutely. So a big part of vocal coaching is around the muscles, around the mouth. So the more elastic and loose my muscles are, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm now demonstrating We're here. We're having a little stretch in yeah, the studio. Yeah, a little <laughs> vocal stretch here. Um, because the overtones inside the mouth, they are the part of the sound that gives you resonance, if you will. And if I now, for example, speak with a very, very flat voice and I'm not closing my jaws, you can hear that the resonance disappears. So now when I open my mouth, it sounds richer. Unfortunately, for some of us, you know, bodies do different things when we're stressed. Some people clench their jaws a lot and have a lot of tension in the muscles. Mm-hmm. When that is the case, if now like, if I have a lot of tension here, it's good. So, so very often it's about loosening these muscles and really, really practicing articulation. Articulation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like I'm in My Fair Lady. Rain in Spain. Yes. <laughs> yes. But I went to university and I'm from the northeast of England and I never had a really strong accent. But at that time, it was about getting rid of any regional dialect because that wasn't in fashion and broadcasting in the early 2000s. And now they actually really like a regional accent because, it, you know, and I think it's right, you know, it seems warmer and more relatable and it's what the majority of people have. Very, very few people have that kind of Queen's or King's English now. So it is possible, no name who's messaged. Um, and P has been in touch saying, I've just listened back to a voice note I left on my friend's WhatsApp and realised not for the first time that I hate the sound of my own voice. It sounds a bit posh. I'm not posh. Um, It has a little girl intonation. It's a bit higher than I would like. Sometimes I have a subtle lisp. I'm 34 years old. Is there anything that can be done? I mean, obviously, vocal coaching would be an amazing thing to do, but for the majority of people, that's probably not the route they would go down. Are there any resources or exercises, any recommended 
listening, I suppose. Well, the, f- the first step when you start working with your voice is to really let go of judgment because we are so harsh in our own voices mm-hmm. and so no name, whoever you are, you're not alone. Most people, again, it, there's a quote that says, you know, being able to listen to a recording of your own voice without judgment is one of the highest measures of self-esteem. It's like, <laughs> then you really reach the limit, you know. So Who can do that? My well, gosh. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, for my, I, I noticed when I was, um, when WhatsApp, no, messages started to get more common that many of my clients said, you know, I'm listening to my WhatsApp messages now, so I'm getting more used to my voice. It's mm. getting better. So just getting used to it is something we can do. Like exposure therapy. Exactly. You might not need to change a single thing. You <laughs> might just need to change how you feel about it. That's it. And also any kind of activity for the voice is nice. If the voice is a little bit like an animal in a cage, most of us keep it caged in. We don't let it out. And how it's supposed to be nice if you never let it play? <laughs> A message here saying, I love the sound of my own voice. That's from Patrick. How do we let our voices play? We've got one minute left, Kim. Any exercises, any fun that people people can be having in their cars or at home this afternoon to let that little animal run free? <laughs> <laughs> if you like singing in the car, if you like singing in the shower, all of those kind of things. And learn a new language because that's just new muscles, new new different voice journeys and have fun with it. The best way to learn that is just to copy, 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 copy like children do and have fun with it. Kim, for anyone that, that wants to work with you, you go between here and the UK. Your book is out. What's the best way of getting in touch? Writekindoflow.com. Writekindoflow.com. If you want to send me the word voice, I will happily send you that link. I can stop feeling so self-conscious about mine now. Kim A. Page, an absolute pleasure to have you in the studio. Um, You've got such great energy, such a lovely voice, and I've really, really learned a few things there. Thank you. We are meeting the expert this afternoon from the great resignation to the four-day work week to quiet quitting. Today's job market and workplace changed drastically, as has the terminology. And one term that has emerged, shift shock, a phrase I've been quite nervous about saying. Um, Holding our hand through this topic is Bushra Khan, emotional well-being coach at Wealth by Medcare there in Jumeirah. Um, Thank you so much for being with us today, Bushra. I'm really, really fascinated in this topic. And I wondered why, why you are. Is this something that you've noticed from the UK where you've been working for decades and, and here in Dubai as well? Thank you for having me, Helen. Um, yes, I see it a lot nowadays with my clients in Dubai and my clients abroad. What is shift shock? <laughs> shift shock refers. <laughs> see, <laughs> you know what I mean. See, I know. Shift Tell- shock refers to the emotional and psychological response. It can be defined as a feeling of surprise, disorientation, disappointment that occurs when the outcome of a situation or event doesn't align with one's expectations. Ooh, okay. This is interesting. I don't know if you know Mo Godat's work, but he talks a lot about why so many of us are unhappy and it's to do with exactly that, that gap between expectation and reality. Absolutely. In the workplace, when we think about examples in particular, we had an awful lot of people, as I mentioned, that great resignation, you know, being really unhappy with how things had shaken down post-pandemic and then getting into a new job, only to find that the new job wasn't the answer that they were hoping for. Um, can you explain a little bit about 
why it happens. Can you explain, delve a little bit more into that shock, I guess? Because the expectation when we are, uh, what I'm noticing with my clients as well, it's it's work or it's a relationship. Mm. There are some expectations that how the work should look like. We are living in this idealistic world. So expectations are very high that I should always be happy and there should be no roadblocks and everything should just sail, be perfect. It's too much expectation and I would say it's unrealistic. Yeah. Now, it's interesting you mentioned relationships there because (laughs) a lot of people um, think that, you know, if you've been single, unhappily single for a long time, that when you meet someone, all your problems will be over. Yes. You know, you walk... in this Disney world. Yeah, you walk up the aisle and it's like, la, 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 everything's fine. Without realising that actually that's sometimes where the work starts. Or even motherhood, I think, would be... Or parenthood can, can be a real shift shock. Absolutely. Everything is so readily available. Everything it just happens. You just uh, say it and it happens. And when it's not happening, we feel that, oh, there is something wrong. Mm-hmm. So oh, let's change it. And when they change, same thing happens. But something inside needs to change and more realistic approach needs to be taken. Have healthy, I would say, in, especially in a romantic relationship, have before you get into something serious, have healthy boundaries. Be uh, Talk about what your needs are, what the goals are, so you can really um, prevent emotional shift shock. Well, that's a really interesting point because I think a lot of us expect our partners or prospective partners to be mind readers. And then, yeah. and then when they don't meet our expectations, our uncommunicated expectations, it's like, well, this relationship's doomed or this person isn't for yeah. me. Because what you're doing is you're thinking what happened in your previous relationship, this is what's going to happen again. Mm -hmm. So you're being triggered. And before you can work on it, you already decide this is not going to happen. And you call it a day. And exactly the same thing is happening at work as well. So let's talk about work. So we had a a, a message earlier, anonymous, by the way, you can leave your name off saying, um, I've been moved to um, a new department in my company. I didn't want to move. I'm not a fan of my new line manager and I'm trying trying to not let that cloud the experience, but it's difficult. How long should you give a new situation, e.g. a job or a new role, before admitting that it's not working? Ooh, that's, I mean, that's a how long is a piece of string question. Exactly. (laughs) But I would give you a tip that, when you show up, you have already decided that this person, this nine manager, you don't like because they don't like you. The tip I would give is that when you speak to them, say to yourself, they really like me. I know she really likes me. So when you are speaking to somebody because you think they like you, the way you will speak to them, the way your energy will be, will be so different. Try this for a little while. I would say don't give up because the chances are there is something in you and I'm not blaming is attracting that energy. If you change the way you look at them, the way they look at you, that will also change. There's a quote that just came to mind and I've just found it. It's by Joanna Lumley and I wish I had Joanna Lumley's voice to read it. Um, It says, the secret, darling, is to love everyone you meet from the moment you meet them. Give everyone the benefit of the doubt. 
start from a position that they are lovely and that they will love you and you will love them. Most people will respond to that and be lovely and love you back. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and you can achieve the most wonderful things. She also follows up with don't let any of the beeps get you down. Um, Absolutely. But, but I, I love that idea of just, and I do feel like, you know, there's good in most people, but it's interesting to think about going into that workplace and not letting someone get you down, mm. expecting them to be lovely back. Um, oh. But uh, when it comes to you know, when it's when it's time to say enough is enough, this actually isn't yes. working, you know, because I think we all have these initial recalibrations and adjustments in the workplace, whether yeah, it's a new manager, a new role, new responsibilities. And sometimes we want them, you know, we've put ourselves forward for that and we get them and then you're like, oh, that actually wasn't what I wanted at all. Or in this case, in this case you've been forcibly moved. Absolutely. Some things are like that you feel it that I'm actually, if given it enough time, I'm not happy, don't be there. Mm -hmm. But if you are feeling that it's a new job, new role, then maybe you are uneasy, that person is uneasy. Give it a little bit of time. I would say at least give it six months. Yeah. Well, it's interesting when we think about expat life as well, you know, moving to a new country. Yeah. Or, you know, as I'm sure so many people listening to have experienced friends leaving and then you, you have to think, oh, gosh, you know, now my life's going to be a bit different because I haven't got my person. And change is not comfortable. It's not. Yeah, it's change not. is not comfortable. You feel insecure, you feel lack of confidence. There's so many different things because you are that one person who has entered this organization or this workplace. So you have to prove yourself. So you mm. have a lot of pressure. So shift shock. It's it's definitely trending nowadays. And I'm sure it's not a new Thing. It's just got kind of a new name, I guess. So what what about minimising shift shock? You mentioned there in relationships in terms of being clear about your boundaries. Yeah. What else can we be doing, yeah. Bushra? So um, clearing your boundaries, uh, and I said individual needs, goals. To minimise shift shock, there are several strategies I would recommend. Regular uh, review and adjust expectations in response to changing circumstances. For instance, a personal finance, an individual might uh, adjust their retirement saving plan as economic conditions yeah. fluctuate. Mm -hmm. Stay informed about potential disruptors and challenges in your field or life. Um, also develop resilience and problem solving skills to cope with unexpected changes and minimize shift shock in your emotional life, I would say self-prioritize, self-care, routines such as meditation, exercise, mindfulness, to build emotional resilience, to better cope with unexpected life events. Do you feel like some people are naturally more, you know, adaptable, more, more resilient? Yes, I think maybe because of their life experiences. Mm. But we can all develop that uh, emotional resilience by working on it by, as I said, by um, meditation, exercise, being more mindful, being uh, having a flexible mindset. Yeah, that growth mindset. Yeah, well. growth mindset. So in case if you have a problem and uh, life changes or you have setbacks at work, you take it as a positive thing. Okay, fine, I can work on my skill set. This is the time to develop my own self. Mm -hmm. So, so many things can be done to see a change as a as a opportunity, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, Khan, you are an emotional well-being coach. You're there at Wealth by Medcare. What else do you help people with? Are you able to give us a little 
potted um, explanation of some of the work you do at Wealth and what you can help people with? I work as a transformational coach and holistic psychotherapy counsellor. I help with people with their childhood traumas. And my best part is to show them and help them how to trans- transform their lives. I use holistic approach, so I use cognitive behavior therapy. I do EFT, EMDR. I what's, do it, what's, different- what's EFT? EFT is emotional um, <laughs> no, emotional focus therapy. Okay. So you use tapping. It's also oh, called tapping. tapping. So to, you, use, you do tapping on your meridian points to release the trauma from your body as well. Trauma is not just in your mind, it sits in your body as well. So we have to release it from your mind and body together. The body keeps the score. Can we talk? Can body we, keeps can, the score. It does. Can we talk trauma on another day? Yes, I would love to. Okay, brilliant. Maybe a good one for January, February, once all the I would love to. And I think it's really timely. We're talking about expectations at this time of year when people have very high expectations of the festive period, of family dynamics, of just how delighted our little cherubs are going to be with the presents we've worked so hard to buy them, and sometimes they're not. Um, so Shift Shock is what we've been talking about today. Bushra Khan can be found at Wealth by Medca. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much. Really Thanks. timely topic, whether it is professionally or indeed personally. regular listeners will know that we love introducing you to inspirational people and this can take all sorts of forms from educators and experts, students, teachers of course and now it's an author but not just an author. Moroccan tech entrepreneur, change maker and author Hene Bazad is with us. Her new book Being Other, The Beauty and Power of Being an Outsider is out now aiming to take readers on a journey towards their own empowerment and self-love, exploring the strength of identity and ultimately guiding readers to lead and achieve an authentic and fulfilling life. And I think this is such a powerful topic. And I thank you so much for being with us. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm great. I'm doing wonderful speaking now from uh, Cape Town, South Africa. Wow. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your time. And firstly, huge congratulations on the publication of the book. This is the new baby's just been out a few weeks, so I'm I'm so thrilled it's out in the world, and I, I want to hear a little bit about the response to it soon. Before we get to that yeah. publication point, tell us a little bit about before that and your why. You know why you wanted to delve into this, exploring the theme of being other. Why is it so important to you? Absolutely, thank you for that question. So whenever I started, I decided to work on this book. It was a moment of uh, big transition for me. I had this, you know, just come out of four years, very intense years, uh, working as a repatriate entrepreneur in Africa, working as a policy advisor as well. And I wanted to reflect on this first decade working in innovation, tech, sustainability, and what had been the threat, uh, essentially because I had moved continents, countries, positions, uh, created a number of uh, projects already. Mm-hmm. Um, and I needed to reflect because I felt like many of the situations had been challenging for me in ways I hadn't been prepared for those challenges, despite my, um, you know, education and, and elite schools and such. I, I feel I felt like I needed to go a little bit deeper. And so at this very moment, I, I paused in a way, uh, as in I was still active in many ways. I, I was developing another venture, but this book came as a moment of, I need to collect all the notes, all the thoughts, mm. uh, all this journey and find the threads. 
the initial thread that I found was integrity, was, was kind of like moving places and shifting perspectives because I needed to behold my integrity. Um, so at the beginning, I thought it would be a book about the lessons from the, the beginning, essentially, the lessons from this first decade, uh, until I kind of realized actually the other uh, commonality uh, in my experiences was that I was I was the other in many of such decision-making rooms. I was in France. I was the North African. In Morocco, I was the repatriate. In East Africa, I was the North African. Mm-hmm. Um, many, many times, I was holding the identity of being the minority of minorities, and that comes with specific challenges that I needed to unpack to kind of like get the essence and the lessons to ho- hopefully bring um, some wisdom and some strategy and some hope to other. Uh, women in particular, but not just women, other people that that can embrace this perspective and, and feel empowered by uh, this experience. Would you mind ex- explaining a few of the examples that that come to mind when you think about this sense of, especially in the workplace, that people might not be aware of, as you're saying, you know, thinking about feeling feeling other in decision making. What did that look like sometimes in practice? Well, in practice, it looked like uh, being the only woman in in a room of uh, men engineers, uh, being constantly questioned about my my choices, being told things as a as a entrepreneur in Morocco, or sometimes denied opportunities, as in funding opportunities, mm-hmm. blatantly, despite uh, the the you know massive opportunity that I was bringing. And first of all, setting up a coding school in Morocco, which was the first North African coding bootcamp, and and many times I would be told, you know, oh, how interesting, how, if not how cute that is, oh, you're 28-year-old uh, and, uh, and uh, you're so full of energy. And so it, it just felt so odd for people to envision uh, leadership that would be different. But mm-hmm. even later on, I mean, a few years ago, and I started the book with this anecdote, um, I was approached for a role of CEO for a much bigger platform than I had ever built. Um, and eventually throughout the conversations uh, with the team, after the founder had actually reached out to me, I was told things like, but you're young, you're a woman, and eventually what life will bring to you in the next few years. So again, blatantly discriminated against for just being a woman and potentially becoming a mother at some point in my life, um, maybe maybe throughout my mandate. Mm-hmm. So those situations can be very cruel and then you don't have any resorts because what what can you do could you can you record the interview go to a lawyer you know it's and plus you're still in the phase where you're building your credibility and mm-hmm. your reputation and so it, it feels really disempowering and those outrageous situations but also the accumulation of let's say microaggressions you know i was mm-hmm. living in france after the bataclan attacks it was a very difficult context and I think right now we're also experiencing a context where there are many tensions a lot of uh, discrimination racism uh, Mm -hmm. in the tech space in particular I mean if you speak with the Arabs in the Silicon Valley they're going through a very hard time at the moment due to the uh, the situation in the Middle East Um, and so I think I think it's important to understand these perspectives and make sure that we are equipped to navigate to be able to actually uh, feel completely empowered in what we have to bring and the gifts and talents and the contributions we have to bring mm-hmm. and also the capacity to build authentic relationships because at the end of the day, that is success for me. We're in conversation now with Moroccan entrepreneur and author Hane Bazad. She's the author of Being Other. 
So I'm curious, who is the book for? First of all, for me, the intention was to bring not just my experience and also that of other women that I interviewed, but but also tools. So every chapter has exercises that people can use for their own uh, personal development or they can use in context of, say, uh, acceleration programs mm. or uh, women empowerment programs, circles, and so on. So uh, in, in editing the book in particular, I, you know, kind of, try to, to, to simplify a little bit the, the language to make sure that also younger generations that mm. perhaps do not fully relate with the 10 years experience could, can understand, but can also, you know, it, it can, I was thinking of an ideal reader that would be my younger self mm. or my, uh, some of the, the, the friends that I know in this group age that haven't had, a, you know, an experience yet, like fully, um, uh, full-time jobs and, and such things at the at an international level. And what do they need to hear and understand already? And maybe they can still come back to it. This book is a tribute to them. It's definitely, I want it to be a contribution for them. However, I do feel this book is not just for black, indigenous and women of color. I had a number of conversations with white women uh, as well that can absolutely relate to those experiences of having been othered and they need those tools as well. And now I also had conversations with white men that usually are not constantly questioned about their capacity, capabilities uh, due to their privilege. I mean, and, you know, the initial reaction is that when I read the cover, I don't feel I'm, I'm, uh, I'm invited to read necessarily. And then I'm like, yes, but go beyond the first two, first pages. And then you'll see that maybe you actually uh, want to embrace that perspective. And I was told by those men that eventually did it. And many of them have actually, uh, you know, signed... Um, uh, forwards and have started to distribute around them. For those who want to understand uh, what the future can look like, what is the other perspective, this book is a very big resource. And I was just, you know, I was in a conversation yesterday with some folks from the Web3 space. Most of them, I mean, actually all of them were men and many of them were white men. And one of them had looked up my profile and he said, thank you for bringing this uh, contribution. Uh, I, I love that you're kind of a uh, writing about what the world could look like if we hadn't made it so uh, divided and if we had thought from, of inclusion from the beginning. And so wow. his words actually were a confirmation for me uh, that, that this book is, is timely, this contribution is timely, and it's not just for BIWOC, it's for everyone to, mm. to want to create a different world. That's huge to have that kind of response. Um, Hannah, can I ask you about response from women who are exactly what you're talking about, kind of intersecting about faith and identity, um, you know, nationality, culture. What what are some of the, the messages you've had from, from women who, as you say, you have in mind, whether it's a younger generation or just wanting to create those connections of you are not alone in this? Mm-hmm. Well, the response has been very moving, to be honest. You know, I, I started a book tour. Um, I had an event in Lisbon. I had uh, an event in Accra, in Nairobi, in Kigali, in London already. And now uh, a couple of book talks in Cape Town. It's been huge to be able to engage with those communities. Most of the people that came uh, had just a few pages, had read just a few pages or uh, but they were interested and everyone was extremely moved. And I also used, you know, in another context, which was more of a European change makers, 
um, I used one of the exercises that I offer in the book uh, in a workshop, in a retreat, and it was magnificent. People wrote to each other love letters, as I invite to do so in the book, especially for Baroque leaders that have inspired them. And then they wrote to themselves uh, love letters. And they ended up wow. crying and hugging and kissing each other. And I think for me, and it, it, it transpired throughout the book, it's, it's very much, I share my journey of self-love and how it, it called me, those challenges called me to really embrace and have more compassion for, for myself, for mm-hmm. younger uh, versions of myself in certain situations because I couldn't have known better. Mm-hmm. And, and in a way, this is exactly the message of the book, as in how are we um, transforming, transcending those difficult experiences to constantly make sure that we come from a place of love and we bring that vision, those beautiful visions of change and transformation that are needed and uh, at this point in time from a place of love and a lot of change makers do need those tools because most of the time they are activated because they have and rightfully so anger about injustice and and uh, climate change and so on and so forth however this can only be for me this can only be a trigger to action and then to be able to to do a journey that is uh, impactful, it has to come from a place of love. And, and so how do we do so? So this is exactly what the book is about. So diversity in the workplace, what are some of the messages that you would love to get across to people about making sure that everyone in the room feels seen? I would say for decision makers that have a say in terms of composing a, a group, I think uh, many of them have perhaps reflected a lot and, and need to be even more equipped when it comes to doing diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging much better. Mm-hmm. I think this book can be of help. But I think it's it's about not just thinking about the key moments. You know, I was told some, sometimes, oh, w- your relationship to a company, it's, it's mostly what you remember from entering and from leaving. And for me, it's not true. It's a, it's a constant renewed contract on an everyday basis of how do I feel respected, seen? What are the, the approaches to feeling like the energy that I'm bringing? Because most of the time, you know, we talk about KPIs. And I feel like the real shift that's going to happen and that should happen. And for me, this book is belongs to this, uh, let's say, philosophy of we're experiencing a sh- an energetic shift, as in we're leaving behind patriarchy and we have not yet built what it could look like to be equal together mm-hmm. and to power each other up. And in the workplace, I think this is a very interesting, because we spend most of our time there and because we're still in a, in a context where productivity matters and everyone wants, and, and it's fantastic, like it can be channeled in the right way for as long as it absorbs and offers a platform for the purpose of, of people. I think the idea is for, for these people to understand how talented they need to be in orchestrating the chemistry of of humanity that that is constantly coming together on a daily basis. And so it's beyond those reports and KPIs. It's what is, how am I making sure that people respect each other, see each other, appreciate each other, and instead of feeling competitive to one another, they can collaborate in a deeper way. Uh, and I think, yeah, that's, for me, that's the goal. And then, so uh, it, it is a very humanistic act. And, and I, I hope that this book will help them enhance their capacity to, to excel in this act. We've also seen, you know, when we're thinking about, you know, KPIs and bottom lines, that 
you know, diversity is a really good way to, to boost your earnings because you're getting perspectives, you're getting problem solving from, you know, people and places that you perhaps hadn't considered. Um, and maybe that's a good motivator. Maybe it just comes down to money you know, for, a, for an oh, awful absolutely. lot of people. No, it is also a very humanistic act to have a beautiful bottom line. And yes, diversity <laughs> has has proved to be a very effective factor. I also want to say I feel like the, the workplace needs to shift to be, become a lot more absorbing the wisdom of nature. And in nature, there's a lot of diversity. An environment that is not diverse is eventually dying or at risk. And so when we take that into account and we're able to, and, and a lot of the, the chapters of the book talk about that, the power of community, symbiotic relationships and so on. So this uh, eco approach to relating in the workplace is, is very effective, as a matter of fact. It's very generative, yeah. And lastly, I mean, I think, you know, this is an incredible legacy already, um, but what are your hopes for the book moving forward and perhaps continued conversations around the topic of, of being other? Absolutely. Well, I'm already blessed with this book tour that will take me to Dubai eventually as well. And I have a number of uh, book talks and, and, and workshops. And I think I would like to pursue um, this in addition to, at the moment, kind of envisioning how I can bring it to the next level. And I talk a little bit about this vision in the book. How can we create a creative leadership program for black, indigenous and women of color? and empower those that have um, startup ideas in the space of tech, education, um, and climate, and eventually help them uh, access funding. But all of this coming with a very holistic approach to uh, their contribution. And so that's what I'm hoping to achieve. And for me, this book is a foundation to this vision for this, this venture that I'm developing. Being other, the beauty and power of being an outsider. Um, thank you so much for bringing this topic to us. And for anyone that wants to find out more about you and who wants to find the book, what's the best way of getting in touch? I'm active on social media, LinkedIn, Instagram. Uh, look me up, Hannah Bezad. Um, and then you can also reach out to my publisher, The Dream War Collective, um, and many more to come. So just look up my social media and you'll, you'll, you'll have the info. Thanks again to Hannah Bezad, Moroccan tech entrepreneur, changemaker and author of Being Other, The Beauty and Power of being an outsider. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai I 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.